Would you turn to Matthew chapter 9? Matthew chapter 9, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay, it's going to be on the screen, or there's one in front of you, if you still like to hold the thing, or if you got your phone, swipe to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 9 in just a moment, and uh, first I want to ask you a question, it's a congregation poll, how many of you made New Year's resolutions? Let's see the hands, don't be embarrassed, it's okay, this is good, this is good, this is like half the room, okay? Okay. Research from an organization called the Research Institute actually says half of Americans, about half of Americans, make New Year's resolutions. So that's okay. You want to guess, of those half that make New Year's resolutions, what are the top three? Like, just shout them out. What's, what do you think is lose weight? Booyah. Number one, lose weight. Let me raise my hand. I put on this tight shirt, and I said, man, I need to lose some weight. That's number one. What's number two? What's that? Money. That's good. Who said exercise? Yes, that's one of them. But top three, somebody I think even said what they said, and that is spend less, save more. That's number three. What's that? Amen. Amen. All right. Number two, it's get organized. Okay? Get organized. Ooh, I just stepped on Kelly's. She probably got one of them drawers that you can barely open and it's like spilling out with markers. We got one of them things. Lose weight, get organized, and financial goals. So about half of Americans make these resolutions. How many people, when 2016 comes to a close, yes? How many people do you think the Research Institute says statistically achieve those resolutions, achieve those goals? What's the percent value you think? Ten? 10.25? All right. Two, we got a really pessimistic person, April, in the back. It's actually 8%. 8% will actually see it through. Now, why is this? We all make them because we're hopeful. We have faith in ourselves. We, have, we can do it. This is the year, man. 2016, that's me, baby. But then what happens is this. To actually do this or to achieve your goals, to make these plans, you actually have to want it. You actually have to go for it. You actually have to say, in order to lose weight, I must eat better and exercise and do these things. I can't just write it on a note card and slide it in my desk and say, this year's the year. You actually have to make plans. You actually have to take steps. You actually have to have a plan to go through step one, two, three. It's okay to make plans, okay? Maybe some of you are thinking about a passage in James where he says, you know, to all you people who are making New Year's resolutions, well, James doesn't say that, but what he says effectively amounts to, you say, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Tomorrow I'm going to go to that town and I'm going to make money and I'm going to do this. He says, you're boasting. You're boasting. It's okay to make plans, but the issue James has, the issue a lot of us have when we make plans is if we're putting all our stock and weight in our own self, if we're putting that faith in ourselves, a lot of times we're going to come up short because I think we give ourselves a lot more credit than maybe sometimes credits do. It's okay to make plans. It's okay to make resolutions. But the issue is we don't make them trusting that we're going to do it. We need to make plans hoping and working in, con- in, in, in concert with the God who will help us each step of the way. It's okay to make plans. 
But even better than plans, I believe, God wants us to be present. Present to him. And when we find we are present to God, we're present to others. We make these great lofty plans for 2016, but I think God is a God of the now, of the this moment, the right now. He wants us to be awake to Him, and when we're awake to God, what? We're awake to others. We make plans for the future. God wants us to make present. God wants to be present, and He wants us to be present enough to follow Him through the detours that come our way. See, the reason we don't follow through with our New Year's resolutions is not just because we put our faith in ourselves, but because even if we did everything we wanted to do, even if you followed the plan, like Ocean's Eleven, step one, two, three, and then the, this guy's going to get in the box and he's not going to fall and break his arm, and you know, then Don Cheadle's character is going to blow something up and it's going to work perfectly. Even if you did all the steps, something's going to go wrong. There's going to come a detour in your life. You can be like Job who is righteous and had it all, but you know what? Sometimes things are just going to happen. The S, excuse me, is going to happen if I can be so blunt. Yes? I'm trying to get your attention. You can do all the right things, but life happens. We can call them detours. We can call them obstacles. We can call them circumstances, but it's going to not go the way we planned. A lot of people that went to El Paso with me uh, uh, this, at the beginning of the year were teasing me because my motto was to be what? Fluid. To be fluid. Because the detours are going to come. We're not going to get it all right. But we have a model in Jesus who is supremely present to God, which made him supremely present to others. And he was fluid and always awake and aware of what is presented him. Let's look at Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at a really famous passage. Matthew's got the shorter version of a really beautiful longer version in Mark chapter 5. It's a famous scene, and it's one that's about the detours that come our way, and Jesus, who models for us perfectly what it means to be present and awake even when the detours come. We see a man who has a plan, and I didn't mean to rhyme that so much, and a detour happens. We see a woman who has a plan, and she goes for it, and we see all along the way that the detours come, and God loves to work through the detours. He loves to use the detours, and so we need to be present to him, present to what he's up to, those nudgings, because when we're present to God, we're present to others. And let's see Jesus get interrupted and stay present to his Father. Let's start in verse 18. This is Matthew's shorter version of a beautiful, powerful scene in Jesus' life and ministry. So while Jesus was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. So Jesus, what he's doing, Matthew drops us in the middle of the story and says, while Jesus was saying this, well, Jesus was having a conversation with some of John the Baptist's disciples about fasting. He was doing his thing, and he, we see now detour number one. 
Okay, Jesus has come from the other side of the lake. Uh, he's done some healing. He's called Matthew. He's got his thing going. He's got his itinerary. And while he's saying this, it's like somebody goes, doom, 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 knocks on the door and wants to talk to Jesus about fasting, which is really like rude if you're asking him at a meal. But that's a terrible joke. Okay, let's keep moving. It's a detour. Jesus is at a meal. Jesus is talking. While he's saying this, a detour happens, and a synagogue leader, okay, do you see this? A synagogue leader came and knelt before him. Mark tells us his name is Jairus, okay? Jairus is a synagogue leader. He's a respectable man, and what this respectable man is doing, because he has a plan, he's going to come and kneel before Jesus, which is a sign of what? Great, incredible humility, and he's going to be incredibly humble because he's got an incredible request, and we're going to see a glimpse of his incredible faith. Here is his plan. This man humbles himself, kneels before Jesus, and says, my daughter has just died. Now, we can make a big deal about Jairus, a synagogue leader, humbling himself, kneeling down. But when your daughter has just died, I think a father would do anything at all and try anything in the book, no matter how crazy it seemed. Because his plan was that his 12-year-old daughter, Mark tells us that she's 12, his plan for his 12-year-old daughter was to live a happy, healthy life. And that plan unraveled. Mark tells us that she's about to die. What we know is somewhere in this conversation, a father has left his dying child to scrape up a desperate plan to go to this person Jesus he's heard about. He humbles himself. He breaks down after a week of being broken because his 12-year-old daughter, who is supposed to have this beautiful life, well, that plan's unraveled. Let's get a new plan. My daughter has just died. Listen to what he says. But come and put your hand on her and she will live. He's got great humility, yes, but he's got an even greater faith. Can you believe this? How many of us walk into hospital rooms and think like this? Oh, well, this is Bible times. This is Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know who didn't know very much about people being raised for the dead? Jairus. Because it happened about as infrequently in his time as it does in ours. But this incredible faith, he's scraping the bottom of the barrel. He's desperate. His 12-year-old daughter has just died. And he has the gall to ask this person to put his hands on her and she will live. He is so certain of it. And we can barely put money in the offering plate. We can barely pray about our cold. We look at Jairus and we say, are you kidding me? This is incredible faith. We sing a song. We've sang a song. We don't sing it anymore. I like the song. But the chorus says, give me faith to trust what you say. And I'm kind of convinced that I think faith is one of the only things that God doesn't give us. Because I think faith is something that we need to give to God. Because faith in God means trusting him. And trusting that he can actually do what he says he can do. And we trust that even when our 12-year-old daughter has died, it's not the end. 
And maybe she's not going to raise up, spoiler alert, like she will in this scene when Jesus does touch her and she does wake up. But we can trust that God will make all things new. We can trust beyond a shadow of the doubt, regardless of our present circumstances, that God will make things new. And he will wipe away every tear. And the cancer that's not healed today will be healed when cancer has no more say and no more reign. Death will be the last enemy, and if we can't see it today, we have faith that trusts that he can do it, and he will lead us through it, even if he doesn't. Because the problem is we want Jesus to be a walking emergency room. And in Jesus' ministry, he wasn't always that, okay? He doesn't heal everyone that's dead. He doesn't heal everyone that's sick and blind and deaf. And man, do I want him to. Man, I want him to. You telling me that these people packed in around him, asking him questions about fasting or asking him to heal his deaf son, they want him to. But he's not a walking emergency room. What he's after is the recreation, not just of this person, that person, which he is, but if he doesn't heal this person or that person, he's after the whole world. And our faith, our trust, what we just spent this entire season of Advent is saying, it's dark. There's darkness in this world. There's violence in this world. There's tornadoes that rip through our towns and destroy homes. That is not how it ought to be. Let's name that and say, this sucks. But we say, you know what? Jesus is stronger and better than any tornado, than any sickness, and even stronger than death. And he's going to show us that in this scene. And Matthew cuts the fat in this passage, and it drills home this statement that says, you know what? When our plans fall apart, would we trust and have faith that he can do something about it? And if he doesn't, can we trust that he loves us and he will one day? So Jairus has this incredible humility. He's got an even more incredible faith. And he says, come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus, who did not care so much about that conversation that had come to a close, said, okay, he was fluid, he was ready for the detour, he was present to God, present to Jairus, and he gets up and what does it say in verse 19? He got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Now, Jesus is on his way. Now Jesus has a plan. I'm going to go do something about this. I don't know what is probably what everybody else and his disciples are thinking. Uh, dude, isn't she dead, man? What are we doing, dude? We're sitting here eating and doing all this cool stuff out here. But they went and so did his disciples. So on their way. Verse 20, here comes detour number two. We're going to meet a woman with her plan that serves as a detour to Jesus on his way to Jairus' house, okay? Just then, they're on the way. There's a crowd around him. There's disciples. There's onlookers. There's Jairus and his companions. They're marching toward the house. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, We've got a 12-year-old daughter who's dead. We've got a woman who's been basically relationally dead for 12 years. What do I mean by that? 
Well, in the Jewish culture, in the culture in which Jesus was brought up, in the culture in which she lived, if you had a discharge, male or female, you were unclean. It doesn't mean you were bad. It means you're unclean. Because the whole of Jewish law is about holiness, is about separateness. And it spoke to who God is, which is holy and separate and other. So if you look back at Leviticus 15, there's a whole section about discharges that made people unclean. There's a section at the end of Leviticus 15 that talks about women who have discharges that makes them unclean. Look at what Leviticus 15, 25 to 27 says so we can get a feel for what this woman has endured for 12 years. This is what it meant for her spiritually and relationally. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, is 12 years beyond her period? Yes. She will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. How long has she had the discharge? 12 years. She's unclean, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean as in her bed during her monthly period. And anything she sits on will be unclean, as during her period. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Where she sleeps, where she sits, who touches her and who she touches, unclean. Do you think she touched, sat, slept in many places with other people? No. She is relationally cut off. She's also, Mark tells us, in financial ruin. She spent everything she had because her plan was, I'm going to spend money to doctors, spiritual healers, anyone at all who can help me. And Mark tells us she spent everything she had, but she didn't get better. She got worse. She's in relational pain, cut off. She's in financial ruin because she spent everything she had, and now she's gotten worse, so now she's physically in pain, cut off. Her plan 12 years ago was to live a happy, healthy life, probably with a husband, probably in a home with many of her family, with many other people, worshiping in the synagogue in which Jairus was a leader. We have Jairus, who's a wealthy, respected man, and we have this woman who is an outcast and cut off from the synagogue on the outskirts of her life, of the life of that community. What is her plan? Get to Jesus. She has gone 12 years and seen everybody else, and she's going to take, just like Jairus, an incredible risk, Incredible humility, but she matches it with incredible faith. Look what she does. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Now, did she touch Jesus? Yes. Did it make Jesus unclean? You'd think so. But let's fill in the blanks. Who was traveling with Jesus? Was it just Jesus and he had this nice force field and everybody else just kind of like watched him and he had nobody around him? 
This dude was probably like where I was earlier this week at the Kessler Theater. We were watching a show and we were constantly jockeying for position. And God help you if you want to get to the bathroom. You got to walk and you got to rub elbows with all sorts of people to fight through the crowd. And so she touched probably, I don't know, a dozen people. She is risking as an outcast even more outcasting because everyone she's rubbing elbows with is now unclean. But she says, if I could only touch his cloak, I will be healed. We have a man who says, my daughter's dead, but if Jesus touches her. We have a woman who has basically been in a kind of death for 12 years, and she says, if I can only touch him. It's incredible faith. It's an incredible risk. And let me tell you something. I don't take risks. I try not to ruffle any feathers. I try not to ask Jesus for what I really want. I try not to risk. Why? Because if I'm honest, my faith that I'm trying to give to God probably doesn't even come close to Jairus or this woman. And I'm afraid that I don't take risks, or perhaps we don't take risks to reach out and touch him because we fear that we don't have the faith to back it up. And I'm going to tell you that there are scenes of people who encounter Jesus. I think about another father whose son is riddled with what appears to be epilepsy, But the gospel writers tell us there's demons just having their way with this young child. What did that child do to deserve any of that? Nothing. But the father stands before Jesus with his son, afflicted by demons and sickness, and he says, Lord, I believe, but help my what? Unbelief. I may not risk, and I may not have the faith to back it up, But I think God is pleased with whatever we can scrape up from the barrel. I think that a lot of these songs we sing, we can't truly mean. We don't truly mean. It's like New Year's Eve resolutions we're making to Jesus. I give you all of my life, Jesus. All of me is yours. It's hard to mean what we sing. It's hard to have faith in a God who can do these incredible things. So what do we do? We just don't sing and we just don't ask. We certainly don't give of our time. We certainly don't give of our money. We certainly don't give in our relationships because we're certain that Jesus can't do what he says he can do. We're certain in some deep part of us that Jesus is not who he says he is. But man, would we have the faith That God can, and if he doesn't, he will. And he's going to love us all the way from point A to Z. And even within your desperation, even with all the pressures around you, for this woman it looked like people who were cutting her off and putting her aside, with all the pressure, with all the circumstances, I want to believe that there's still room to touch just the bit of his cloak. I still want to believe that no matter what you're going through, no matter what I'm going through, you can always reach out because he's always closer than you think he is. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. God, where are you? Well, I'm just really not, you know, he's just not really in my life. And I think he grieves right beside us 
saying, I have been with you since the moment you were in your mother's womb. I know you. I love you. I want to be with you way more than you want to be with me on any January 1st saying, I'm going to read the Bible and pray and do this. I want to be with you because I love you. And Abba, the Father, is embracing you and saying, you're my child. You're my child. But we say, God's not here because what we hear is, I'm ridiculous. I'm a screw-up. I just can't do this. I'm no good. I'm a sinner. Nobody would love me. God doesn't love me. Look at my past. And he says, I am right here. Come to me. I will give you rest if you would only reach out and touch my cloak. Jesus turned and saw her. How many people do you think saw her? Today I was listening to this passage. Uh, there's a great resource called Pray As You Go. It's a mobile app and it's these Irish Jesuits that have some really cool accents and they walk you through a prayer every single day. And one of the things they have on their site, it's called Pray As You Go. In the corner, there are imaginative prayer exercises. And there's about four or five scenes that we looked at in our School of Prayer class. And I highly commend them to you. They're about 13 to 15 minutes in which they walk you through this passage in Mark. They walk you through other scenes in which Jesus heals people. And they say, who are you in your scene, in this scene? Are you the woman? Are you Jairus? Are you a disciple? Are you an onlooker? But one of the things that struck me, and it will strike you too, I imagine, if you go and listen to this thing. In that prayer, they say, now, imagine that God is looking at you. We always say, let's look to God. God, I look to you. But do we ever stop and say, what does he see when he sees me? Jesus saw her, and I think that Jesus was so present to God, so present to others, that he wasn't on his phone, he wasn't looking aside, he wasn't looking ahead to his next thing that he had to do. I think Jesus was so present, deeply looking at her in her eyes, and you know what he saw in her eyes? Fear. Because she had touched him. She had touched a bunch of other people. She had done an incredible risk. And Jesus, I bet within one nanosecond, obliterated that fear because perfect love casts out fear. And he turns to her, and I imagine he put his hand on her chin. He raised her eyes to meet his, and he says, Take heart, daughter. Before Jairus' daughter is ever seen, the first daughter to be healed is this woman. Is this woman who had no relationship to anyone in her life and she has Jesus look at her in the way that nobody's looked at her for 12 years and he calls her daughter. And he said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Jesus healed her body. But you know what else he healed? Her status. Her whole self. Because he said those words in a crowd of people as if to not only affirm her as daughter, but to affirm her in the community that says, guess what? She is all right now. And all those people that were bent out of shape because she brushed aside them, they have to look at Jesus and say, who is this? 
Because these towns are not huge metroplexes. They know this woman. They know what she's been through. And they know that even the hem of Jesus' garment could fix what doctors and money and everything else couldn't fix. And it begs the question for me, why do I go to everywhere else but even the hem of his cloak? These are words I'm saying and I'm hoping that I can believe. I know this. Because you're sitting there thinking, well, when I pray for this or when I pray for that or when I try to sense him or see him or imagine him, he's nowhere to be found. I say keep making your way through the crowd. Jesus, I think, turns just as casually and relaxed and so presently because I don't think Jesus is surprised. I think he was so in tune with what the Spirit was after, with what Abba the Father was after, that this detour of this woman, who had been a detour to many other people, was not a detour to him. He was a daughter that needed healing. But he turns and he still doesn't forget what he was on his way to do. Go see a dead young girl and a father who is beside himself. Look at verse 22, 3, excuse me. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes. Now, in our society, what happens when we go to funeral wakes at Restland or Williams or wherever you're going? Are there people that brought their pipes? No, unless Uncle Remus is smoking tobacco in the back seat, nobody's bringing pipes, Okay. The culture in which Jesus finds himself is a culture in which professional mourners, hired hands, people would come to a scene in which the plans have unraveled and someone's died, and they come, and you know what they do? They play pipes, they sing songs, they wail, they grieve, they mourn, outside, inside, anywhere. Why? So mom and dad and brother and sister and grandma and grandpa can wail and mourn and say, this is not how it ought to be. They don't go into the funeral parlor at Restland and everybody's just trying to hold it back and keep it in. That's what we do, and that's okay, that's part of our culture. But what Jesus comes upon is a funeral crowd. And this funeral crowd is certain of two things. Death is final and it's painful, yes? And the second thing they're certain of is that Jesus or anybody else can't do a thing about it. Look what they say. He says to this funeral crowd, Go away, the girl is not dead, but asleep. Which elicits the response, They laughed at him. Jesus still goes, and he goes in a sort of faith, a sort of trust, that he can do something about a dead girl. So he breaks up the funeral party, and he knows something they don't. They thought death is final and painful, and he says death is not the last word. So he boots them out of the house, and after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and watched. 
Matthew and Mark put these two scenes together, not just because they happened in the same kind of afternoon, but because I think he wants us to see the sparks that are flying off of each other. This idea that, you know, Jairus asked him to touch this daughter and that this woman touched Jesus. And he goes in this room. It's now quiet. Everybody's outside. They've stopped. They're laughing. And now what happens is Jesus says, little girl, wake up. In Mark's version, he has the Aramaic words, which would have been the language that Jesus and all his disciples and everybody spoke day to day. Our Bible is written in Greek, but what they were speaking was Aramaic. And Mark has that Aramaic word, and I wondered, man, why of all the words that Jesus said in Aramaic, why this one? And I love what N.T. Wright says when he writes about this passage. His theory is that Mark wrote those Aramaic words that basically said, little girl, wake up. Because you know what Jairus probably said in Aramaic every single day for 12 years of that little girl's life? Little girl, wake up. Just as common as you do every day with your kids. But in that moment, I cannot imagine walking in and seeing my little girls But to hear Jesus say those common words, those everyday words, with such power and tenderness and beauty, to touch her little shoulder and say, little girl, it's time to wake up. And you know what? Not every little girl wakes up. But this little girl did. And I can't imagine what she thought when she saw this man Jesus in her room. But I know that he's going to say the same thing to each one of us when we go to sleep in death. And I know that death is not the last word, even if it gets its word in edgewise today. And I think back to a time when Amy and I, I think we weren't even married yet, but we had gone to a young mom's funeral. It was a family member that she was very close to, and we had watched cancer just take her and take her quick. And we went to that funeral, and we get in her little Honda Civic, and we're driving away from that place where she was laid to sleep, to death. And we cried, and we wailed, and we drove down this country road, and we were so stubborn and resolved in that moment to say, Jesus, we refuse to believe that that's it. And I had gone through a period in my life where I was wondering about this business. I was wondering about Jesus. I was wondering about faith. I was wondering about all these questions I didn't have sufficient answers for. But when it came to that moment, I wanted to believe and I scraped all the faith I had in the barrel that one day we will all hear him say, wake up. And with a word of power, we're not just going to be some spirits in some heaven country club playing harps. He's going to wake our bodies up because he's not even going to waste that. And he's going to reunite our soul or spirit or whatever you want to call it with our bodies. He's going to wake all of us up. He's going to renew all of us. And he's going to wake this dark world up that's riddled with violence and addiction and oppression and all the isms and racisms and all the things that are just driving us crazy and wrecking this world and he's going to say that's enough behold I make all things new and he said it in that living room in that day to a little 12 year old girl and he healed Jairus' daughter and he healed the woman he called daughter 
Because nobody is so supremely locked in to what the Spirit of God is after, empowered by Him, than Jesus was. Nobody was so supremely locked into the Father's will that said, this is not how it ought to be, but watch me make all things new. And little by little, I'm doing it today, January 2nd of 2016. And I will continue to do it until the last day, whenever that may be. And I will wake this world up. I will wake you up. But until then, would we follow Jesus' example to try and have faith, to have trust that God knows what he's doing. He will do it. And no matter what our circumstances that happen in this year, we know that he's with us. That's the resolution, to hold whatever plans we've made loosely, loosely enough to see these detours as opportunities for God to work, to see these circumstances, these obstacles, as a place where we can put our faith, however little we have, to activate God's power. Because he said to this woman, your faith has healed you. Now, did Jesus heal her? Yes. Did her faith heal her? Yes. That's maybe for another sermon another time. But would we have enough faith and enough trust that no matter where we walk, no matter where we go, we would be present to God, which leads us to be present to others, all the while trusting that he is with us this year or any year to come. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your love for us. So grateful that you are love. We're so grateful that you are nearer to us than we could ever imagine, that you love us more than we could ever begin to dare to believe. So we pray for this moment in time. Whatever plans we have before us, would we surrender them to you and find that whatever dreams we have would be multiplied in your hands, whatever fears we have would be released from our hands into yours. We pray that we would follow Jesus, the one who wakes people up. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Let's receive our benediction. Would you stand, please? Our times are in your hands, but we count our times for us. We count our days and fill them with us. We count our weeks and fill them with our busyness. We count our years and fill them with our fears. And then, caught up with your claim, our times are in your hands. Take our times, times of love and times of weariness. Take them all, bless them and break them. Give them to us again, slow-paced and eager, fixed in your readiness for a neighbor. Occupy our calendars in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.